This is the third and final week of our gospel text that comes from Matthew 5, a passage also known as the Sermon on the Mount that opens with the Beatitudes or Blesseds, although we highlighted the Old Testament or Hebrew text the week that that was here, the text from Micah that focused on Miriam and that what God asks of us, that it is not burdensome, but to live out our faith in justice, mercy and kindness, and a humility in our walk with God. Jesus continues on in his teachings to remind us that we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth from last week. As light, we are beacons of social justice, and to hide our light under a bushel is not a neutral stance, but actually harms the world around us, rather than being a shining light that pierces the shadows, naming and praying for an end to gun violence and illuminating a path forward for those who are hungry or battling addictions. As salt, we are reminded of our value, even as we enhance the world around us, preserving what is good and healing what is broken in the world and in our hearts. And the verse that immediately precedes our reading today warns us that unless our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, we certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's pretty clear to me that my righteousness will never reach the righteousness of the religious leaders of Jesus' time and perhaps you're aware of that yourself. While we sometimes struggle to present our tithe to the Lord, they considered their tithe to the tenth, even of herbs like mint, that were worth considering. But they were found to neglect what was more important, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Here, Jesus is not erasing Hebrew scriptures, but refocusing us on their intent, on how the kingdom of heaven should look as lived out by his followers. In context, this is the way our righteousness would exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees of Jesus' day. It is through faith in God enabling us through the Holy Spirit to live in ways that are countercultural, not to simply live better lives, but lives that are transformed. The words of Jesus offer us a way to transcend the law. It's a way of reimagining the law, not as a way of ignoring it, but as a way of living it out from the heart as children of the God who loves us deeply and desires the world built on loving relationships as designed from the Garden of Eden, rather than striving to live out rule after rule with limited and varied success. Jesus addresses four areas of human concern and how we deal with relationships once they are broken. Anger and reconciliation, adultery, divorce, swearing, all of which make me uncomfortable, <laughs> especially as someone who has had the experience of a divorce. I reach every scripture when it mentions divorce and I kind of cringe inside because perhaps like me, you've heard sermons that have made me feel like this because of something that was truly unavoidable. Something as though God forgives everything except your divorce. Well, if you're cringing a little bit when we get to that scripture, I want you just to take a deep breath and relax. There's more to the scripture than you did wrong. 
The scripture tells us how to live righteous and holy lives through whatever we have experienced, that the love of God is greater and forgiveness is always possible. Taken apart from the whole of scripture, these words sound as though Jesus is giving us absolutes. Yet we also know that God in the persons of the Father and the Son both expressed anger and that divorce was permitted in the law. So it's important that we do our very best to understand it is the spirit of the law. That is the heart of what we do. That is what is of primary importance. In verses 21 through 26, it speaks about murder and aligning anger with it. The law is clear, do not commit murder. But Jesus transcends the law when he equates anger with it. Numerous passages in both the Hebrew and New Testament condemn anger, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Colossians, Ephesians. But we are human and we will get angry. Yet the focus here is what we do with it and how it can destroy relationships and how we can repair the brokenness that results. Anger is an alert that something is wrong, that something we value has been transgressed, that what is important to us has been minimized. Anger is a great check your engine light, motivating us to pay attention, to slow down and stop, to figure out what went wrong, and maybe even get some professional help to fix it. But as good as a check engine light that anger is, is, it's a terrible windshield. It does not clarify, but usually clouds our judgment. It doesn't help us negotiate the best way forward. When we are angry, we see each other with a different lens, and it is seldom a lens of love. We've all met people who are rooted in anger, an anger that leads to bitterness and gossip and distrust. Anger that motivates us to assign meaning to another's action that may or may not be true. It precludes us from seeking the truth, and it precludes us from finding meaning with our siblings in Christ. Anger that can drive us away from each other to fracture relationship and prevent reconciliation. The remedy is to come together, to go to each other as soon as it is safe to do so, The urgency is expressed that even if you're in the middle of doing something that serves God and your neighbor, remember the sibling that you are out of relationship with and do something about it. Now the service is going to continue and we're not going to stop in the middle and say, okay, if you have something against one another, turn to each other and straighten it out today. That's unwise. But it does tell us that it's important to do. We have a relationship that's vertical with God, and we have a relationship that is horizontal with each other, and both of them need to work. Sometimes I've said, well, God is okay, but uh, people need work, and maybe you felt the same way. God is okay. People, sometimes, but the beauty of it is as we strengthen our relationship with God, it opens up a door in our heart of love and nourishment where we can speak to our brothers and sisters, our sons and daughters, our parents, friends and family 
in a way that is loving and open-hearted. Jesus goes on to speak about adultery, but he speaks of it as addressed as a matter of the heart. I have yet to hear of a person in deep devotion to God, in the middle of morning prayer, minding their own business, stone cold sober, suddenly wake up in the middle of an adulterous affair. It doesn't happen that way. It happens by careful planning. We generally don't fall into sin. We walk into it and plan for it. It's planning of lies, of texts, of phone calls, and meetups. But it starts with looking at someone through the wrong lens, the lens of lust, unbridled desire that alters the heart. And lust, when it's incubated long enough, gives birth to sin. And sin creates death and destruction, the opposite of what builds healthy relationships in community. Adultery. So in a dramatic and not prescriptive language. If the look caused the problem, pluck out your eyeball. If your hand's causing the problem, cut it off. It's dramatic and poetic. It's not prescriptive. What Jesus is saying is get to the root cause so that it doesn't recur. If necessary, go to dramatic lengths to prevent it from starting in the first place or to prevent its recurrence. Then we get to divorce. Divorce was permitted in the Torah, but it was based on the hardness of heart. It is not an ideal that was grounded in love and commitment. Sometimes it is necessary. It is almost always painful. But if you've walked through that shadow of divorce, there is healing and understanding, and you can come away whole and healthy and be a source of healing rather than rooted in bitterness and pain. And then Jesus goes on to swearing. Sounds like Jesus was on a roll that day. It's a matter of integrity. Swearing here is not about cussing. Although my father would bring himself up to his full five foot five height and proclaim to his family, in this family, we don't cuss. Cussing is the effort of a feeble mind attempting to express itself forcefully. I do not have feeble-minded children. So we didn't cuss around dad. <laughs> but here, swearing is not about cussing, but of an oath, verifying that something is true or not. Oaths were permitted but they must be that you were swearing to something that was true, according to Deuteronomy and Exodus. It tells us from the heart to be honest and clear in our communication, to let our yeses mean yes and our noes mean no. If you've ever said yes under pressure, you know the inner turmoil it can generate, how sometimes we betray ourselves. I'm not saying that we should only say yes when it's easy and convenient, Sometimes that yes is a yes of love in community and relationship, and it causes us discomfort. What it is calling us to do is to say our yes is filled with love. And if we can't say a yes filled with love, we might want to examine if perhaps no is the right answer. Jesus opens up the law for us. Jesus shares the intent of the law. He begets 
gets behind, he gets behind the what we do to the why of what we do it. Jesus is calling us to live out our lives as people of an eternal kingdom, to value relationships with God and with each other, to look at the law not as a rule book that kills joy and makes us holier than thou, judgmental and unforgiving, but one that brings life. We will try, and sometimes we will fall short. And when, not if we do, we will come to the altar seeking forgiveness and healing for renewal and strength, that we will live out the gospel that Jesus proclaims, even if it doesn't go as planned. We will go and we will be reconciled to each other.